Right, there's been endless fascination with the Essex Boys murders. There's books, there's videos, there's been podcasts. And for the first time on the channel, we've got Dave here, private investigator. And he's part of the Essex murders, which launches on Sky Documentaries on the 16th of April. 15th. Oh, that's what it says in the email. Sorry, I'll take that out. <laughs> All right. Can you, Dave, can you tell the viewers a little bit about what you do and how you came to be involved in this series, please? Uh, yes. So um, I run uh, a particular company called TMI. TMI uh, is uh, is a company, a private investigations company, I suppose, but we also do private prosecutions um, and we investigate crimes and we investigate crimes from shoplifting all the way up to investigate murders. Um, and so we do miscarriage of justice cases. Uh, we investigate miscarriage of justice cases um, as well as all the other stuff we do. Uh, we don't charge for that. That's sort of a, a sideline. It's something that we all enjoy doing uh, and we do it for the right reasons. And um, uh, yeah, and we basically... Um, we got approached about four years ago by uh, a former member of the defence team who asked me the question, do I think that Mick Steele and Jack Holmes are guilty? I had obviously some involvement in it, uh, not in the actual murder investigation, but in the, the, the preceding drugs operation. And, um, and obviously I know all the people around that time. And I said categorically, yeah, they're guilty. There's no doubt you can't change my mind. They're going to, you know, they are guilty. Um, had a long conversation, and as a result of that, uh, I was given some material that I read that I sort of thought that's not right. There's something quite not not quite right about all this. And then following that, um, reviewed some more stuff, and then questions. I started sort of raising questions about what had gone on at the time, and um, started to get doubts. To be honest, um, so I brought in some independent people, completely independent, who have got nothing, weren't part of TMI at all. Uh, very senior former police officers who I said, look, I've got my views on this. Take this material away, uh, review it, see what you think, come back and tell me what your view is. And they went away. It was at the, it was at the beginning of COVID. Um, and Albert Patrick, for instance, um, came in and took the whole lot away, reviewed it, came back and said, yep, something's seriously wrong here. And at that point, we started really starting to dig into it. So we started meeting with former Essex officers, serving Essex officers, um, serving Met officers and former officers, meeting witnesses, former informants, and obviously using our our backgrounds of investigating organised crime, we were able to talk to a lot of people in confidence. And the end result of that is that um, we've come to the conclusion that... Um, there's been a miscarriage of justice. Um, when we started, we looked at two things, or one primary thing, which was the question, did Darren Nichols tell the truth? If Darren Nichols told the truth, then Michael Steele and Jack Holmes are guilty and quite rightly, quite rightly went to prison for, for the murders. If Darren Nichols lied, then clearly there has been a miscarriage of justice. And this, you get a lot of noise around this case. There's lots of conspiracy theories and all sorts of things to get off at tangents around other murders. But the fact is, it comes down to one simple fact, which the, the trial judge made very clear at the original trial. If you believe Darren Nichols, then they are guilty. If you don't, then they're innocent. Our view, based on the material we've seen, 
is that Darren Nichols told lies. All right. So you're obviously an expert on this case. And many people, you know, we've got a lot of views in America, for example, are not familiar with the case at all. So we're going to go over it much more slowly yep. and set the scene here. And for the purposes of YouTube, YouTube doesn't like us to mention the names of substances. So the substances, we're going to call them green, white, brown, and pills for illegal substances. If you could just re refrain from using the actual words, otherwise, you know, it's, it's, it's to try and eliminate uh, certain transactions on the internet that they do that, but it um, yeah. becomes a pain in the ass. All right. So, Dave, could you tell the viewers then, what was the backstory for these murders? So the backstories of these murders <clears throat> are that um, there was uh, a period in, you know, go back to 94, 95, uh, when uh, there was an increase in the uh, rave scene. Um, and as a result of that, there was an increase in uh, the supply, manufacturing supply of pills uh, around around that time. Um, it was also it was also sort of combined with the beginning of the uh, the trade in white powder as well, um, and so you had organised crime gangs all vying for position um, and trying to jump on the back of what was a very lucrative trade, um, and so you did see at the time there were a lot of assassinations, lots of murders as different groups and gangs vied for power. Um, what happened here was there was a lot of uh, a significant build-up to the murders and three individuals uh, pat tate uh, tony tucker and craig rolf were um i mean they, they they've sort of got this name the essex boys now um they were a localized um policing problem in that they had become local drug dealers they sold um drugs in and around the Basildon area and they they had sort of become more and more problematic leading up to their deaths there were a number of incidents and around that time just before then weeks before um a young girl had died as a result of taking tablet uh, a pill apologies right. uh, and um following that death there was quite a lot of police interest in the uh, in these particular individuals and across the whole of Essex in the in the in the trading drugs, um, and effectively these three individuals were lured to uh, uh, Workhouse Lane in Retterdon on the sixth of December, nineteen ninety five, and at that location, um, someone shot them dead with a pump action shotgun, and. Following that, there was obviously a police investigation and uh, a particular individual was identified very early on as potentially responsible. And we know what happened and why that happened. And as a result of that, they targeted Michael Steele, who was then known as Mickey the pilot. Um, initially, he was targeted around the supply of uh, green, if you like, from Holland. And uh, by Customs Excise, uh, NIS, National Investigation Service. And that culminated over a period of time in the arrests of Jack Wombs, Michael Steele, a number of other individuals, some police officers, and importantly, Darren Nichols. Um, where I sort of got skin in the game, if you like, is that I 
was on the regional crime squad at the time, um, based at Brentwood. So I worked with Essex officers, uh, but I was a Met officer, but worked in a, an Essex office. And I arrested Darren Nichols for the importation of drugs, 10 kilos of uh, that day. Um, and then after that, he was then taken off by the murder squad and interviewed, and he subsequently rolled over uh, uh, and implicated Michael Steele and Jack Wombs in the murders. He then went on, obviously, to give evidence against them, and they were convicted of the murders. Um, but it's it's a very, the case is very complicated, and it's complicated because of all sorts of other avenues that go off, other murders, uh, potential investigation of uh, police corruption, all sorts of things um, that complicate the whole story. But the, the, the real simple, we try to keep this simple. And the simple question is, did Darren Nichols tell the truth or did he lie? So he was believed at the time then? Yes, he was. And was there a vested interest in believing him because the other two guys were, were um, they, they wanted them off the streets anyway? There was a lot of pressure to convict the people they believed were responsible um, for the deaths. Um, from from our investigation, what we we know, uh, and we've got this from both sides of the fence, is that from literally days after the murders, um, Essex police were given information that suggested that Mickey the pilot, Michael Steele, was responsible. And from that point, you know, in the words that Albert always uses, the investigation become blinkered. They didn't look outside at anything else. And and what what we found from very early on from reviewing the paperwork that, that uh, we've had access to is that you've got all of the pieces of the jigsaw within the Essex police paperwork, within the evidence, the intelligence, the information that was in their systems everything was there and the the way I, I sort of try to simplify is it they had all the pieces of the puzzle to make the puzzle or get half the puzzle made at least but they didn't even open the box they were just completely blinkered on michael Steele. michael Steele was responsible and every effort was put into you know convicting michael Steele. and it wasn't until darren nichols arrest <clears throat> and darren nichols giving uh initially information and then obviously he went on to give evidence that they then convicted Michael Steele and Jack Wombs um, and what it's quite interesting that they actually charged Michael Steele and Jack Wombs with the murders at that point although Darren Nichols was talking about the murders he hadn't actually made a written statement they, they charged Steele and Wombs on the back of what he was saying rather than any evidence he hadn't made a formal written statement at the point that he was charged or they what they were charged so with darren then did his statement was the evidence that came about to back his statement up or was he fact-fed um it, the, the the program deals with with some of that um uh in relation to whether or not darren nichols was coached in his evidence um and at trial there was um there was evidence submitted in relation to cell site it was the first time cell site had ever been used in a, in a criminal trial um and so it was you know it's in its, it was in its infancy uh, what's interesting is the cell site was used to um corroborate 
um, the evidence of Darren Nichols. However, um, you know, we've worked with uh, the UK's leading expert on cell site who made witness statements at the time and for the appeals and for the CCRC, the Criminal Cases Review Commission, uh, a chap called David Bristow, who usually gives evidence for the police to convict people. Uh, David Bristow, like ourselves, is absolutely convinced of the innocence of Jack Wyams and Michael Steele. And he has um, done all of the tests required that should have been done at the time. And his evidence is that um, contrary to what the police put forward uh, in evidence around cell site, they were wrong. That wasn't correct. His, his evidence is that Michael Steele was more likely where he said he was in Bolton, um, as part of his alibi. And likewise, the important point that um, is put forward by the police is that they suggest that Jack Wombs was in Workhouse Lane at 1859 and made two calls in Workhouse Lane. Um, and David Bristow, the UK's leading expert, says absolutely not. No way could he have made those phone calls. He would more likely be down the road at the Wheatshift Public House, which is where he said in his alibi he was. So yet again, you've got material that um, has been undermined. And we go back to this one important point is, did Darren Nichols tell the truth? And the, the evidence now suggests very strongly that he lied. So you're saying that the cell phone analysis is it's considered junk science these days? It's not junk science. Nowadays, it's, it's you know, it, it's often irrefutable evidence. But this was the first case it ever been used. We can show that there were telephone calls, there was t call data that had been missed off the, um, the, the, the sheets that went, the evidence that went before the jury, we can show that. Very important telephone calls were not on there at all, were never disclosed to the defence, only afterwards we found this out. Um, so you've got manipulated, manufactured evidence for the court process, the trial process, that we can now show was categorically manipulated or manufactured. And how was Darren rewarded for giving this statement? Uh, Darren was um, basically, he went into protected, the protected witness program, Supergrass program. Um, we've spoken to a number of former Essex officers who looked after him, who were part of the armed team that looked after Darren. And, you know, one of them described him as being treated like a king. Um, you know, whilst he was in the, uh, in the cell, they, they partitioned off half the cell uh, area uh, at particular police stations and he had his own games machine and he had his own TV. He was allowed to go down the pub whenever he wanted to go down the pub. They would have to go with him as an armed protection team. Effectively, <laughs> he, he did what he wanted while he was in custody. Um, and uh, even to the point where he was, you know, one of the people we spoke to um, who doesn't actually appear in the program but was, was part of it was... Um, uh, he's described how they went to, you know, a, a fun fair and the entire family turned up and, you know, the entire family were paid for by Essex police to go, you know, on all the rides, etc. So he was treated like a king. He bought his, uh, he, he got convicted of the offences he said he had committed. And we don't believe he admitted all his criminality. And he went and got a new, uh, a new life, effectively, a new identity, a new life and remains within the protective witness program. So why was he considered credible on the stand then? Did the jury not hear any of that, that he was living large and got this reward? No, 
no, none of that, that, that evidence didn't really come out uh, until after the trial. And as part of, there was, a, there was an operation, um, an investigation um, in about 2002 um, by Hertfordshire Police as part of what they call a Section 19 inquiry. And uh, a lot of this material came out as a result of that. Um, it, it was a very focused inquiry. Uh, the CCRC had asked them to review whether or not Darren Nichols had been paid prior to trial for uh, doing TV programmes, media appearances and writing books. It's quite clear that, yes, he was. And at one point, it appears he even had a, a video camera in his cell and was doing a day diary. Um, but what also came out of that, importantly, and everyone sort of missed it, is that, uh, or it was ignored, is a series of statements from a number of protective witnesses who were other super grasses within the protective witness scheme who were serving alongside Darren Nichols and Darren Nichols was openly telling them people that he was going to lie in court. So this is prior to trial, Darren Nichols was telling people that he was going to give perjured evidence. Not only that, he also told them uh, that he was being coached and uh, he told us something that was, hadn't come out before. He told us that they'd also given, he'd been given uh, documents to allow him to create his story around the actual cell site data. And so you had all of this evidence that Darren Nichols had lied and these people had made witness statements. So these people went on to give evidence in other major trials as witnesses of truth. Um, so they were believed in other trials and yet they are saying Darren Nichols told us he was going to tell lies in court. Um, that material, those evidence, that evidence, those statements was all were all given to the CCRC. Nothing ever happened. And, you know, there's a massive question mark as to why. What's the threshold on new evidence enabling a new trial? Is that it, the threshold wasn't crossed? <sighs> the, the, the problem with this whole system, the system is is broken effectively because the only route to a new trial or to prove a miscarriage of justice is through the court of appeal. In order to get to the court of appeal, the only route there is through the Criminal Cases Review Commission. So effectively, you, you would make a, an application to the CCRC. It's reviewed by uh, their people. Quite often, they're not detectives, they're not police officers, sometimes they're solicitors. Um, and it's not a team, you know, often it's just one or two individuals who are looking at all this material and they make the decision. But if they, as they did with the Operation Obtain and Section 19 inquiry, they kept their focus very tight around, did Darren Nichols get paid for media appearances or, or books prior to the trial? And so by keeping it narrow, a very narrow focused investigation, all of that other material became irrelevant to them as such. It shouldn't have become irrelevant to him. It should have been fully disposable, and the court of appeal should be made fully aware that you know these people were saying that Darren Nichols lied. Um, but the, the, the issue and problem is that it's a very once you're convicted, it's a very difficult um, uh, route to follow to get back to the court of appeal and overturn a conviction. Very, very difficult. So I've written a book called Unmaking a Murder, and it's about the 10 methods that prosecutors, uh, corrupt law enforcement use to set up innocent people. And the big one is when there's a murder case is to create an emotional reaction, really emphasize the crime scene photos, you know, the family members who are suffering the wounds and the bloodiness and the guts. Was that something that we saw in this trial? 
absolutely, yeah. I mean, there was full witness protection, um, full jury protection. Um, so, you know, you've got, and I, you know, back in the day when I was a police officer, I, I had done jury and witness protection. You know, you live with the jurors, you know, day in, day out, 24-7. You become part of the family. They get to know you. So you, <laughs> you do you do end up influencing uh, the way a jury thinks. And, and there was a lot of theatre being played out in this case. You know, they were being brought by armed police into, um, into the court. Um, you know, there was all sorts of antics went on, um, uh, which back then did go on. Um, and... You know, there was a lot of stuff in the in the papers, um, you know, larging up. Uh, Mickey Steele was, you know, the the angel of death. I think was one of the papers that uh, article. So there was there was this big portrayal of Steele and Wombs as these gangsters. The reality is, you know, we've spoken to them. Um, that you know, Jack Wombs is a car mechanic. You know, his life is mending cars. He's not. He's not a trained assassin, you know, who, who, you know, he's not someone you would automatically think is going to shoot three men dead in a professional hit. You know, it doesn't he doesn't fit the bill at all. You know, this is a man who was a car mechanic who allegedly killed three people in cold blood with no motive, who then goes to prison and becomes a model prisoner. It just doesn't fit. It's not right. It's it, absolutely not right. And Michael Steele, Michael Steele's a villain. There's no doubt about it. He's a villain. He, 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 you know, he was a drugs importer, imported green. Um, he didn't sell it. He imported it. Um, but by his own admission, you know, he, he, he was involved in that trade. His big mistake, and both Wombs and Steele's big mistake, was the evidence against them for the drugs offences was very, very strong. But by, uh, by going not guilty... Uh, to those offences, the jury probably sat there and thought, if they did that, the evidence is very strong. They probably, they're probably lying about the murders as well. So I think I don't think that played well, and perhaps you know they they didn't take the best decisions, and the defence team didn't give them the best advice around the uh, the drugs offences. So were the names put in the mix by the witness who was coached, or? Were their their names in circulation before that happened? So again, so 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 Darren is is the witness, right? Yeah. Did he put their names in the mix, or were the names in circulation before he was gave his statement? The, the, Michael Steele's name was in circulation as being responsible almost from day one. Um, not no evidence, simply that that information had been received at the most senior levels of Essex police that Michael Steele, Mickey the pilot, that's how they refer to him, Mickey the pilot, had been responsible. But what is interesting is that, you know, from all of the police officers we've spoken to, some very senior, they had no evidence against Michael Steele at all until Darren Nichols uh, rolled over and started uh, giving his account of what had gone on. Up until then, there was no intelligence, no information, no evidence of Michael Steele's involvement. So Darren Nichols is the beginning of the evidential trail, if you like. And did they then bring in other witnesses to back Darren's story up? Yeah, I mean, the the um, this, the, the bottom line is Darren Nichols is, is the case, you know, and that's, as I said at the beginning, the, the trial judge made that very clear. 
there was no other evidence. It was it was Darren Nichols either told the truth or he lied. And if if it could have been proven that Darren had lied, um, then obviously the case would have fallen apart. The other the other important point to it was that um, there were other, there was other credible and compelling evidence of the involvement of other people that had been deliberately ignored as well. And so if the jury had been given the option of the Darren Nichols story and, you know, for instance, the, the Witness A story that we talk about in the programme, if they'd have been given both versions, you know, the car mechanic with no motive killed three men in cold blood compared to, you know, a professional assassin linked to organised crime with a solid motive, um, I don't think the jury would ever have convicted Steele and Wimes. What about witnesses for the defence? What was their role? Um, well, unfortunately, um, the partner of Mickey still never gave evidence. Um, I think a statement was read, but that obviously isn't as, as powerful as if she'd been able to give evidence. Um, we have spoken to her at length and, um, you know, I, I, I interviewed her. Um, I spoke to her about four hours. She she could not be telling lies. The, the the level of detail that she recalls about the night and what happened, you you don't remember the lie to that level. You can remember the lie, but you can't remember, you know, at the point when snow started falling or that you know the car was skidding on the ground, etc. You don't remember that level of detail. And she's very detailed in 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 her in her account of what she recalls from that night. So she was part of Mick's alibi. There's also importantly um a petrol receipt that um uh, mick still says he picked up or he, he refueled the car with petrol um in his peugeot car um whereas darren nickel says that michael Steele was driving a diesel hilux so there was a petrol receipt from that evening um on a credit card and that mysteriously went missing from court um and um I go back to the cell site uh, evidence of David Bristow. David Bristow says that when you look at the cell site, the call, the there's two important calls, 1803 and 1809, which Michael Steele is alleged to have made to Jack Wombs. And according to Darren Nichols and the police, um, Michael Steele was meant to have been in the halfway house, public house at the time of those calls. The evidence of David Bristow is absolutely impossible. He couldn't have been there because of the topography of the land, uh, those calls went through the Childerditch cell tower and it was more likely, highly likely, that he was actually where he said he was in Bolton, which is the evidence that his partner also put forward. Um, and, and the other important thing that we, we, we've, we discovered is we've done the timelines for each of them. We followed the actual timelines. The original uh, police investigation and defence at the time had looked at the timeline for Jack Wombs and Darren Nichols, but they never looked at the timeline for the victims. When you follow the timeline for the victims, Tucker, Tate and Rolf in the Range Rover, it's impossible for that Range Rover, the victims, to have got to Workhouse Lane in time for their murders. It's a very tight, narrow 11 minutes. Darren Nichols says they were murdered between 1848, which is when the phone call to the girlfriend finishes, 1848, and 1859, which is when there was a call allegedly from Jack Wombs to Darren Nichols, which is the come and get us call. 11 minute window. The Range Rover 
Tucker Tank Rolf could not have got to the scene in time for that 11 minute window. So it all falls apart. And there's one really, really important point. Jack Wombs at 12 minutes past five was in Sudbury, in Willemere Caravan Park in Sudbury. And we know he was there because the, the phone call that he makes goes through the Sudbury cell site, the BBC Mast. Darren Nicholl says that Jack Wombs was at Mark's Tay at 5 p.m. That's impossible. Unless he's a time traveller, you cannot get from Sudbury to Mark's Tay, you know, before you actually, you've even left. It's 25 minutes minimum on a decent day. And nobody seemed to have picked that up at trial. But the bottom line is, he couldn't possibly have been where Darren Nichols said he was. It's impossible. Have you watched the movie Rise of the Foot Soldier? Uh, I think I've, yeah, I think I've seen it, I've, you know, but years ago, I've not watched it since all this took place. Because it has a portrayal of this, and it shows that at the end, you know, these the guys, it's, they were enticed into the woods, and that's where the murders occurred. Is that accurate? Is that what happened? They were definitely enticed. They were definitely lured down the lane. There's no no doubt about it. Um, you know, if you go to the the, the account, Witness A's account, um, but then being lured to the lane to um, uh, to do a, a four kilo deal of white, um, and as a result of that, they were shot dead. Um, so that that's correct. Is the question is who lured them to the lane? Who really lured them to the lane, and who really shot them? Wasn't there any phone records pertaining to arranging that meeting? There are phone records, and there are important phone calls that were deliberately left off the uh, the schedule that was given to the jury. And we've investigated um, some of those calls and who the, who made those calls and or who those calls were made to, and those people have never been arrested or interviewed. Uh, quite quite bizarrely, to be honest. You know, you would think if the the last person that say, for instance, Pat Tate calls before. He speaks to his girlfriend at 1844, 1848. The last person he talks to, you would think, would be a suspect or at least would be interviewed. They never interviewed him, which is bizarre. Was there any other exculpatory evidence that was hidden? We've, you know, we, we, we come across stuff almost on a daily basis. You know, every single week we sit in, in you know, talking. In, it's incredible the amount of stuff that has not been disclosed that should have been disclosed um, and various pieces of the jigsaw puzzle. For instance, you know, as, as I said earlier, within the intelligence uh, and information that Essex Police and evidence that Essex Police had in their possession at the time was all of the material that supports Witness A's account. And yet when Witness A was arrested, interviewed and then released back to the Met, there was no investigation of his evidence at all. None at all. They just completely ignored the fact that this man had admitted to driving another person to the vicinity who then carried out the executions. They completely ignored it. They carried out no investigation inquiries at all. And yet within their own documents, there's all the evidence to support that. Do you think that there were some members of the police that wanted these guys dead? Uh, I doubt it. Um, I mean, it's, you know, Policeman Dogar, I mean, perhaps it's a long time to say that with you know the recent conviction of the uh, the police officer in the Met, but um, generally police officers don't go around murdering people. You know, it's uh, that's not you know 
going back then, you know, they would have probably, if you wanted to take Tucker Tate and Rolf out, you would have, you know, undertaken a surveillance operation. It wouldn't have been difficult to catch them. And from the material that we've also uncovered very recently, there was evidence that could have led to particularly Tucker being arrested um, for the supply of drugs at Raquel's that obviously led to the death of Leah Betts. That evidence was again buried. So from the gunshot wounds then, did it indicate how many assassins were present at the crime scene? We don't say how many assassins were present at the crime scene, but there was one shotgun used, um, likely a pump action shotgun from our expert uh, witness. Um, and um, there were seven shells found at the scene. The last shell was probably left in, in, the, uh, in the gun. Um, don't know how many people would have been at scene, um, but uh, likely one assassin. One assassin only fired the. So one one person could have done the whole hit. One person did do the whole hit, yeah. So it might not have been two people uh, present then. Is 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 this you know the allegations about Jack and Mick? Is it that they were both present? Well, that's what Nichols says. Nichols says that um, that Mick and Jack were present. And Nichols, I mean Nichols, is quite you know he he talks about them wearing um, boiler suits, blue boiler suits, and surgical gloves. And importantly, wearing Wellington boots. He says both of them were wearing Wellington boots. There is not one Wellington boot print anywhere in the lane to and from the crime scene or anywhere around the crime scene. Nothing. What there is, is one right foot trainer print, high tech size 10 trainer print by the rear door, which is where the assassin would have lent in with the shotgun and shot the three of them dead. That trainer print obviously is significant. You're talking about, you know, snow on the ground, very cold, inclement weather. When you go back to Witness A's account, when he gets interviewed back in January, five months before Nichols gets arrested, he talks about the assassin wearing tracksuit and trainers. He couldn't possibly have imagined that there was a trainer print found at the scene. And the, the interviewing officers obviously didn't pick up on it. They, they, they ignored it. And it's the most, you know, you would have thought at that point, someone would have said, there's a tracksuit, a, a, a trainer print found at the scene. You know, he's, he's, his evidence suddenly gets a huge amount of credibility. Um, they didn't, they ignored it. And they released him back into the Met. And is Darren Nichols claiming that he was at the crime scene? When it happened? Uh, Darren, no, no, Darren Nichols claims that he uh, obviously drove Jack Wombs to the scene and that he then picked both Jack Wombs and Michael Steele up from the scene. Wow, <laughs> that was believed. So what are the theories then surrounding possible other suspects? I mean, there are numerous theories and we've investigated, you know, and spoken to numerous people. And, and I mean, just this week alone, I've had uh, three or four people call me and talk about, you know, their wives, girlfriends, husbands, or, you know, all being linked or involved in it, you know. Um, so th there's all sorts of theories. But you've got to cut through, you know, uh, the, the noise effectively. And the important point around Witness A's account, we, you know, he definitely didn't tell the whole truth, Witness A, but his account is very credible, um, particularly when you, you tie in other material and evidence and intelligence. Um, and it should have been looked at. It wasn't, this is the big point we keep making is that Essex Police should have investigated his account. 
they never did. And it's really frustrating because as part of all of the publicity that's come out around this, the, the Essex Police and the former SIO, Mr Dibley, keep referring to an exhaustive investigation leading to the convictions of Steeler Moans. Absolute rubbish. They completely ignored a man who said he drove another man to the scene who committed the murders. They ignored it completely. That's hardly an exhaustive investigation. So what do you hope to achieve with this? Uh, how long have these guys served already? So um, Jack Wombs came out on parole last January uh, and he's has gone back to doing what he does. He's a car mechanic. You know, that's his life. It's got back to his family. Um, um, still maintains his innocence, but the they've 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 um, given him very very strict parole conditions, unheard of before. That he can't talk to the media or press. You ask you ask yourself a question why? And uh, Michael still remains a Category A prisoner um, and uh, locked up twenty three hours a day, seven days a week, um, aged seventy nine years old. Um, which again, you know, you would ask yourself why? Because he he's not a violent man. Obviously, according to the Crown, he carried out, or in fact, you know, you got to remember, he, the evidence of Darren Nichols is not that Michael Steele carried out the murders. He was the man who effectively lured them to the lane, but Jack Wombs is the man who actually carried out the murder. So you would ask yourself the question why Michael Steele remains a Category A prisoner when he's not the man who pulled the trigger. So, you know, you, there is a big question mark around the risk that Michael Steele. Uh, you know that exists around him because he's, he wasn't the shooter he wasn't the man who pulled the trigger isn't there a catch-22 whereby unless you admit your guilt and show remorse they're going to hold you forever exactly exactly i mean jack, jack Wombs never admitted his guilt and always maintained his innocence but he was such a model prisoner that the prison service supported his parole michael Steele is a different character michael will not admit his guilt he says i did not do this and i'm not admitting to something i didn't do he could have been released in 2019 his, his tariff was up in 2019 he could have been released in 2019 if he'd have played their game and he'd admitted you know i did do it and i'm really sorry etc gone on all the courses he could have been released he could be out now he didn't and he won't because he didn't do it and you know we are all former detectives. We spent our lives convicting bad people and put them in prison. We would not be trying to get Michael Steele out of prison if we had any doubt at all that he was guilty. Wouldn't do it. It's cost me a bloody fortune. It's cost time, resources, effort, friends. I've lost friends over it, you know, former serving officers. The reality is Michael Steele did not kill Tucker Tate and Rolf. And that's why this is so credible because of your background and what you're saying. So you're saying that the, the, um, Jack got released and did he serve almost 30 years? I don't think he served 30, yeah. They were convicted in 98. They were obviously um, remanded in custody in 96. So he got out last year, so 2000, what was that, 2022, January 2022. So, um, you know, a long, long time. Quarter century. And it's, I think it's important as well that you know, the original trial judge, after conviction, sentenced them to 15 years, 15 years for a triple killing. Now, that, that in itself 
sends a very strong message about what the trial judge thought about the evidence and convictions. 15 years for a triple killing is unheard of. It was obviously upped by Jack Straw um, to, I think, 25 or 26 years. But um, the original trial judge sent a very strong message when he gave them for 15 years. So what's the motive to keep them in here then? Is it that people's careers would unwind? You know, that you've told the family members of the victims that you've solved the crime and that's all going to unravel. Would these guys have to be paid compensation? Is it a combination of factors that's keeping them in? Um, I think I think you can't deal with this in isolation. There are a series of other uh, linked events and offences um, that are tied to various convictions, particularly convictions in Essex. And, um, you know, you've got the Barrymore case, you've got the Lee Balkwell case, um, John Palmer, the most recent case. All of these cases, if one of those was to fall over, then the dominoes would fall and there would be some serious questions asked. And, you know, you, you've only got to look what's happening within the Met at the moment, uh, within the police service and policing in general. Um, you know, it's not the establishment do not want another high profile miscarriage of justice case. Um, but the reality is that, you know, unless you see justice, people are going to make their own minds up as to what's going on. And all we're trying to do is we're just trying to tell people, we're just trying to put the other side of the story out there, stuff that's never been seen before. Uh, and that's what this program, the, the program opens the door to that material. So you're saying the establishment must maintain an illusion of justice. Absolutely. Right. Okay. Well, you've explained it very well. And I fully understand the situation now. Really appreciate that. And for the viewers watching this, can they follow you on socials? Or is there any links you want us to include? Um, yeah, I mean, the, the, the program's going out. Um, I, I'm part of a, a group on social media, um, on Facebook, that um, puts out, you know, more detailed material. Um, the truth is out there. Um, so... Um, yeah, if anyone's got an interest, join the, the Facebook group and you'll get, you know, far more detailed material that um, explains what's going on. And, you know, at the end of the day, what we want from this is we want, first of all, to uh, ask people who were potential witnesses or involved or, you know, come forward, tell us what really went on. Let's get the evidence that can finally get Michael Steele out of prison. Um, and the other thing is to raise the case uh, with the public to try and get some public support uh behind this to get you know get this reheard the evidence the new evidence put before the court of appeal and can you remind the viewers where they can watch this again what channel what time it's on sky documentaries on saturday the 15th this coming weekend and i think the time is 9 25 and it's going out on the, over three weeks three part series um but it's also being offered as a box set so you can sit and you know binge yourself on it over the uh, over the weekend if you want all right. Thank you for being on the podcast then. And for the viewers watching this, please let us know in the comments what you think. All of Dave's links will be in the description box below the video. And if you do get a chance to check it out, let us know what you think of the portrayal as well. And whether you think that these guys were, you know, unjustly convicted. And this other poor guy, Mick, who's 79, I think you said. And he's yep. on, the, on the way to serving 30 years. Whether you think he should be released. Thanks for watching, wherever you're in the world. Take care out there. Cheers.